Do you think everyone should podcast? No, no. Yeah, why do you say it so strongly? Uh, there are so many people out there who are boring, so boring. <laughs> Just nothing to say. No way of saying it. God, they're boring. And I mean, they don't always know they're boring, which is kind of a problem. I am pretty confident you didn't listen to a podcast about podcasting to have someone tell you you should not start a podcast. <laughs> you know, uh, I just couldn't resist, though. Jessica Kupferman is such a character, but she's not on my show because she's a character. She's on my show because she really understands podcasting. She's been podcasting for a long, long time. And along with her partner in crime, Elsie Escobar, they have begun the She Podcast Movement, just rocket it for women podcasters. Check out the links to their stuff in the description of this episode. But we're going to dive into Jessica's background, hear her story, understand how she got to be where she is in the podcasting industry. And if you stick around to the end, Jessica is going to give us a handful of tips for would-be podcasters, including that gem you just heard at the outset. Don't go away. Way back in 2003-2004, an amazing new media technology was developed. It was audio content that could be directly delivered to anyone who subscribed to it. And they called it a podcast. Since that time, podcasting technology has improved and the number of shows have increased exponentially. In these special edition audio sessions of my show, Podcastification, I feature the stories of the people who have found success creating their own podcast, and I'm calling them Podcaster Stories. My father, he had a master's in taught video production at Hood College, which is in Frederick. So we always had the newest and latest tech gear. We had a Betamax before anyone. We had a VHS before oh, wow. anyone. I know I'm dating myself incredibly by even saying those things. I remember those. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. So we had all that stuff before anyone else. And then we had a video camera and my sister and I were allowed to play with it as long as we didn't, you know, smash it on the ground. So we did a lot of our own music videos. We also had a tape recorder where we would just push play and have our own game shows, make our own commercials. Never audio dramas, oddly. Always just me. Inter it was like I had my own late night show and she was always my guest, <laughs> which is not, I don't think, many podcasters' backstories, but it is a weird coincidence or maybe not. Yeah. So I knew that I had a lot of like performance and verbal and communication skills. I went to college for English literature thinking that because I aced those classes in high school, I would ace the whole thing, not realizing all the amounts of reading that I'd be drowning in books yeah. within my first semester. So I switched from English literature to journalism before realizing I hate the news and everything that it stands for, and then went to communications, which was the proper place for me to be because I liked writing flashy, glittery sales copy. It's fun for me and also quite natural for me to be enthusiastic about products. I am a salesperson that loves to be sold things. And even as a kid, I used to make big collages of like magazine ads because I could see that how beautiful that, you know, I thought it was interesting that commercialism and art 
could be the same. I thought, I don't know, even as a kid, I thought that was really interesting. I would make huge posters of ads and cutouts of magazines. Yeah, so I graduated from college and through college, I was in a little bit of theater and I had friends that told me I should be in stand up comedy, but I got pregnant my senior year of college and then like the year after that. So I had young kids at a really young age and couldn't really do stand up comedy life, which requires you to be out at night all the time. And much later, you know, I felt like I could either start again or try to be a public speaker. I'm funny and I don't know about motivating, but I know later in life after I did like all kinds of stuff with a communicate, there's so much you can do a communications degree. So I did advertising sales and then went to graphing and web design and then social media consulting and then, you know, sort of brand consulting. And, and none of that is really any kind of job for speaking and being on stage. So I really missed it. And so I was looking into going back to become a, a public speaker and it was always just kind of in the back of my mind. And then a friend invited me to be on her podcast. This was like in 2000, I guess, 12 or 13. At the time, my father-in-law just died. We had just moved into a new house and I was trying to figure out if I wanted to like go full force on being a speaker or get pregnant and have a third baby. (laughs) You really can't do both because again, it's traveling and not being home. And she invited me on her podcast on Blog Talk Radio. And you know, now's the time we're going to talk about this. And now's the time we're going to do, you know, the definition of the day. And like, it was so cool. And I was immediately obsessed to the point where whatever projects I was working on up until that day, I don't even remember what it was because for two weeks, all I did was create my podcast and my branding and my episodes, invite people to, I mean, I just, I just was completely consumed with it. My first show is called Lady Business Radio. I wanted to be on more podcasts, but couldn't find any that were really interviewing women entrepreneurs. You know, there was Pat Flynn and John Lee Dumas and Lewis House, and they were all kind of interviewing each other. They were all interviewing dudes. And I thought, well, they're never going to put me on their show. So I'll just start my own. And it was one of the first ones, if not the first women's entrepreneurial interview show. And I did that for a couple of years and then I did get pregnant. And then in between there, somehow, I had started She Podcasts, which is was an online community for women podcasters. And when I went on maternity, they were both slowly growing. But by the time I came back, She Podcast was like bursting at the seams. And there were already a few other women's entrepreneurial shows and communities. So that was kind of stagnant. So it sort of pushed me in the direction of helping women podcasters, you know, get their shows off the ground. So that's sort of a short version of how I am where I am. That is all just fascinating. Let me ask some questions about that. When you were a kid and you guys were doing the pretend commercials and pretend radio shows, looking inside yourself, what do you think it was about that medium and that way of expression that appealed to you? As you ask me that in my head, I think about, well, the things I wasn't going to be playing and like house was one of those things. My sister and I played Barbies and we did like dance contests, but like there's a lot of stuff that I think little girls play like house and teacher that I didn't really play. I never wanted to play mommy and I never really played with babies and baby dolls. None of that interested me. What interested me was either being an advertising executive or a rock star and, and sort of (laughs) diversely different career paths. Girls got a dream. Yeah. And so the, tape recorder had this element of me being able to hear how hilarious I was after the fact and also share it with family 
so I was the first grandchild and my my mother was only 25 years older than me and her mother 19 years older than her. So she was my age when I was born and I was the first grandchild on the other side too. And both sides of the family are constantly telling me that I was like a, a little person and I spoke in complete sentences. And I felt a lot, I think like when I was with family, especially extended family, that I was being, I don't want to say paraded, but that I was a marvel. Hmm. And I, and that could just be also having a Jewish mother. Like Elsie and I, my partner, giggle about the difference between a Jewish mother and a Catholic mother, whereas like Catholic mother is like, you're talking too much. Let the other person talk. And a Jewish mother is like, the whole show should be you, <laughs> you know, like they they worship you. And, and I was possibly wrongfully so, but I was told that I was hilarious and brilliant and creative and and funny. And so it just sort of was an opportunity for me to do those things and show it to my parents or have my, you know, my dad be proud because I used his equipment and did something fun with it. But also it was a chance for me to be the boss. You know, my sister was younger. Actually, she was a little bit of a like Pete and repeat. Like she was my shadow a little bit. So like she was never going to take the microphone and be like, so Jessica, tell me about your life. But that's totally what I did to engage her. She was just happy to like sit next to me and watch the tornado happen. So I would get the recorder and be like, so Dana, tell me about this doll. What do you have going on over here? And then she was like, it's pretty, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was just a way of us to play together. But yeah, I think partially was just being able to have something to get that attention. And also my sister and I were in dance class from a very young age. And it wasn't that I enjoyed or even noticed that I was on stage, but that I never, it never occurred to me to be afraid of being heard and having my voice you know, in front of other people. So to me, that was a perfectly natural thing that sometime in my life, I would have an audience and this is just how it would go. That's really interesting how some of us as children grow up with this kind of an innate confidence. Yeah. Falsely so, maybe. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Something I love about Jessica's story is how she went on this investigation of herself as she got a little older and could think a little more maturely about what happened early in her lifetime. She was able to discover some innate talents, innate tendencies and gifts that could really be leveraged for her benefit and the benefit of others. That's really what she's done with She Podcasts alongside Elsie. The two of them have put together a great membership that really has effects that other sort of podcasting conferences and memberships really haven't had. I think that comes directly from how Jessica was created to be, how she's wired, and the kind of things that she's done with it are really, truly amazing. It sounds to me like you're very okay being the outsider. I am now. I don't know that I was then. I mean, at 44, you're so much more self-aware than you were at like 14. And like even in Jewish girls sleepaway camp, I was an outsider because they were all from D.C. and New Jersey and New York. And I was just like bumpkin from Frederick. So I couldn't even fit in where I was supposed to fit in. And there it really made a big difference to me. And I felt like my parents didn't do anything to help smooth the process of fitting in because they wouldn't buy me the same brand name clothes that everyone else had. And I just always felt like a disaster. And back then it really bothered me. And in high school, it bothered me less 
But I did notice later that I did this funny thing, like after I graduated and I would see friends from high school, they would say things like, I always wanted to talk to you and like, or I always wanted to date you, but I just thought you were so snobby. Oh, wow. I just laughed because I was like, that is insane. But the truth is, I probably gave the impression that I was too cool or that I was not bothered because that was Uh my facade. The facade was, it doesn't matter if I'm invited to parties because I don't want to go. I don't feel like going. I didn't even know if I did. I just didn't want to feel the rejection. It was too scary. So I probably did push people away and I regret that. And and in college, similarly, it was a self-esteem thing where like there were guys, I guess, who later said that they would have dated me that I thought I did not have a chance in a million years to have them as my boyfriend. So I just completely... I don't know if I even can you blow something you didn't even notice was happening. Yeah. Um, I didn't even notice those things were happening. And so now I'm more comfortable with, I can still blend like a chameleon, but then I also eventually will say something that shows that I don't belong there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, it's inevitable. It's just inevitable, but I'm fine with my thoughts versus the norm now. Yeah. And you've grown into that. Yeah, I think so. Now, how many podcasts are you a part of right now? Right now, I'm a part of three. I have a show with Elsie Escobar called She Podcasts. I have Brilliant Observations with my editor, John, and my friend, Melissa, from college. And I've been taping one with Mark Asquith called Captivate, and it's about audio influence, but it hasn't launched yet. We have lots and lots of episodes, but we want to launch it in sync with the launch of Captivate, which is a new podcast host. And it just has been going through you know, software development and changes, things like that. Let's back up just a bit then. When you first got exposed to podcasting, it was through being interviewed on a podcast. Yes. Actually, no. I would say five years before that, I was in a job that I hated. And my husband was like, you know, you have an iPod. These are podcasts. They're kind of cool. And I was like, that's the nerdiest thing you've ever said to me. It's like, <laughs> I, I was so turned off by whatever it was he was talking about. But then he found me a comedy podcast. It was Ricky Gervais oh, yeah. comedy podcast. And it was hilarious. And it really helped the day go by and also discouraged people from bothering me and talking to me, which you got to love. And so I spent my days listening to that and graphic design podcast. So this was like 2006. And, you know, never would have thought I would have been interviewed on one or that I would even consider doing one. It just seemed like I almost didn't want other people to know I was listening to them. I was so like, this is so nerdy. I'm so nerdy. Isn't that weird? <laughs> it is, but it's kind of the a sign of the times you were in at the, you know, at the moment. It hadn't really caught on yet. Yeah. So you were aware of podcasts through the Ricky Gervais show primarily. And then you're invited to be on this podcast as a guest. What were they uh, wanting to interview you about? Do you remember? She's an entrepreneur like me. And I think that it was about, you know, working from home and and having your own business. And, you know, what kind of tools did I like to use? What's my favorite, you know, iPhone app? And what's the one thing I can't live without on my computer? Things like that. And so at that time, you were already doing business from home, I take it. Uh, Were you doing sales copy or consulting? I mean, what was your gig? At the time, it was graphic and web design. I would help other entrepreneurs with like their websites and email. You know, I would set up all kinds of like email to website to opt in to social media blasting. And I would set up processes and systems for lots of different kinds of coaches and consultants. So I was, I was a good person to interview as far as like, what's the best thing for growth and what's the best thing for, you know, your, what's two plugins you can't live without, things like that. 
you know, which email provider is the best one? Because I've been fiddling with all of them for years at that point. Yeah. So where did you learn those skills? I went to school for graphic design. I went back to school for graphic design online. And then my print clients started wanting websites. So I had a friend teach me WordPress. I started doing WordPress websites. And then they wanted to know, you know, do you know anything about social media? I started doing social media design. And then I did a contract for Subaru corporate headquarters where I didn't have a lot of time, like I didn't have that much work to do. So I spent a lot of the time there learning about Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn for business. And then I started helping my clients with that after that contract was over. Mm. So I was just sort of like a technical jack of all trades for a while there. Yeah. And I love that about the people that I know who who make a success online, whether it's podcasting or anything else. They're people who take full advantage of the opportunities that they have at the time. You hear all this follow your passion stuff, which I, I get what they mean, but you kind of have to step into the opportunities available to you for the door to open up that might lead to your next step toward your passion. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You don't and, always know what that is. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you just did that. You You took full advantage of where you were. And that led to another opportunity, which led to another opportunity. And lo and behold, look where Jessica is now. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I love that. I just love those kind of stories. I'm very lucky to have had that opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Definitely. So once you were on the podcast, you said you became obsessed. Define obsessed for me. Well, an interview show, I always say, is like the most complicated one you can do because there's so many unpredictable moving parts. And that, and by that, I just mean other people. Other people are unpredictable and they can be, I don't want to say flaky, but they can, you know, just our, our getting on this show was complicated, you know, because I, w- once I forgot, once you, so, so I mean, my need to create system and processes, I wanted to do it as fast as possible because I wanted to start interviewing like right then. So I made a huge list of all the people that I wanted to interview. And then I made a list of all the guests. And then I wanted to have like a form that they filled out so I wouldn't have to go back and forth about their Facebook link and their bio and their headshot. I wanted all of it to come in at one place. And then I wanted a good way to record. At first, when I started my show, I wanted it to be recorded live and people to call in. That was a mistake. Hmm. I thought I was a genius for figuring out that you could do live podcasting until I realized the whole beauty of podcasting is that you can download it whenever you want. I was getting annoyed that no one was showing up for live calls. Meanwhile, I was getting like two, 300 downloads within the first day. This is like within the first month. And so I was just trying to control everyone. <laughs> so I just kind of let that part go. And let them listen whenever they want. Yeah, there's that boss gene again. Exactly. I just want to control how everyone behaves. And so I, I let that go. And it was also about the branding. I wanted it to be perfect. I needed headshots and I wanted my website perfect. And my about, I mean, there's, I obsessed about every little thing before it went live. Everything. And so that was the birth of Lady Business Radio. Lady Business Radio. Yep. Wow. And so you started out interviewing and how did you go about uh, setting up your systems for that. I know a lot of podcasters are very curious about workflow and things like that. What what worked for you? So I would reach out to someone I really wanted to interview, you know, told them a tiny little bit about the show and then ask if they were interested. If they said yes, then I had another template where I would give the link and then sort of what to expect. They would click the link, they would set the time. And then, you know, I explained that there were on there that I needed just for the website so that I wouldn't have to hunt and peck. And then also questions that I would perhaps use at a later date. So I also had questions in there, like, for example, what's an example of a time that you broke the rules 
and it worked out for the better. And then later on, I took 50 of those and made an ebook as like a giveaway and it grew my list quite a bit. So, so I would send the link. They would send it back to me. It would come into an Evernote note. And then when it was time for me to get ready for the interview, I would open the Evernote. I would look at the stuff, be able to research them a little bit and find what was the most interesting thing about them. So I never wanted it to be like, what's the key to success? I always wanted to, you know, like, here's a person who's been going on book tours. Like, how does your husband feel about that? Do you miss your kids? Is there something you would do differently? Hmm. I want to like really be nosy and get into it. And so um, I wanted to research as much as possible. I would write down a few questions, but really I had no structure other than what I was curious about. And then we would just go. I would usually do 90 minutes so that I could schmooze a little ahead of time and then maybe a little bit afterwards because I felt like the schmoozing ahead of time made them comfortable with me so that by the time we started recording, they weren't stiff. Yeah. And then afterwards, I just did it to sort of build a relationship a little bit more and and then, you know, everything would be ready and I would I would have another template that I would just send them what they needed when it went live, like a week before it was going live and then when it went live so that they could share it. I've never thought of the week before template. Now, you know, I obviously do it when it goes live, but the week before sounds like a great idea. Well, it's just because with people who have VAs and stuff like that, like I just wanted to give them a little bit of a leadway so they could add it into their rotation. Otherwise, who knows when they're going to talk about the episode. So I know that well enough to know, like, hey, it's coming up in a week. I don't know if you need the link, but here's a click to tweet for when it's ready. And, you know, here's a your graphic for when it's ready. And then, and then also I would take my show notes and recycle them for my own automations in Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. And so I would have that all scheduled like the week prior. Yeah. That's all very helpful. Very helpful. I'm a processes queen. That's me. Yeah. I love processes too. I'm not always the best at them. Me too. Yeah. Oh, well, my husband is a project manager and he always says that lazy people are the best for making processes because all it is is trying to make your life easier so you can do less work. Oh, yeah. And so- that is actually something I, I excel in is trying to make my life as easy as possible. But that's why I like them. It's like, what here can I automate so I don't go crazy? I also have terrible attention deficit disorder. And so I don't always trust myself to do all the uh, tasks. Yeah. So I need to automate so that other things can be depended on since I can't always be depended on. Yeah. That helps. Yeah, totally. Well, you know, I totally appreciate that. Even though, you know, you're a self-confessed possessor of the boss gene, you also sound very humble. In the sense that you know yourself, you know your limitations, you know where you need help. I mean, I commend you for that. That's great. Thank you. It's not always easy. That's true. No. You know, I don't always calculate correctly and I do take on too much still. But yeah, I try to automate as much as I can just so that I can have things working smoothly. Wow, Jessica has already shared a tremendous amount of insight. I love that last portion about automation and systems. Every successful podcaster that I know gets organized. They figure out how to do this podcasting thing with some sort of system. It doesn't have to look the same as everybody else's, but nevertheless, it has to be a system that works for you. It's not an easy thing to figure out sometimes because there are so many moving pieces. I mean, you have the actual recording of the interview and prior to that, the scheduling of the interview. You have the outline that you have to create. You have show notes to create. You have editing to do. You have music to add and levels to optimize and uploading to a media host. You have social media promotion. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? Right. 
If you're a podcaster, you know the pain of developing good systems. Hey, I just want to make the offer. Part of what I do is podcast consulting and coaching, and I can come alongside to take from the best practices that I've seen hundreds of clients use so far to help you develop a system that works for you using technology, using software, using even just an Excel spreadsheet if that works for you. Let me know. And let's get back to Jessica's podcaster story right now. Lady Business Radio was your first podcast. You're doing the entrepreneurial interviews spawned by your own curiosity. Where did you go from there? From there, I went to New Media Expo in 2013 to learn more about how to grow and become bigger. And I met a couple of women there who were killing it with their shows at the time. And I found that my lunches with them were so much more helpful and you know, the information I was getting for them was so much more useful than going to sessions where I would hear all this math, you know, oh, you want to grow your show? Well, then just do two shows a week instead of one and you'll double your down numbers. Like, that's not really what I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear things like, you know, how to say no when someone asks to be interviewed and you don't want to. I felt guilty about that. Or what happens if a, a show is not good enough to air? How do you say that nicely? Those types of things. And there were too many men floating around with expertise on their shirt. And so I started a Facebook group called Women in Podcasting. And I added the six people that I had been hanging out with in new media. One of them was Elsie Escobar, who's been a podcaster since 2003 or four. So she added like a hundred people within 24 hours. Yeah. Cause she knows everyone. And then a couple months later, she came to me and said, you know, I've always wanted to do a show for women about podcasting. Would you be interested in doing it with me? And I was very flattered because I don't nearly know as much about podcasting as she did. But it ended up working out because I could challenge what she was telling people to do and and I could be the everyman. She was the expert. You know, I'm like the Adam Carolla and she's the Dr. Drew. Yeah. And so we started the show and then the community just kept growing and growing and growing. And now it has over 12,000 members. Wow. It's crazy. Wow. 12,000 members. Yeah. 12,000 members. We've taught at a lot of the different podcasting conferences. We do coaching together and we've done in-person VIP masterminds and online courses and all kinds of stuff for women. And it's been really great. So I stopped doing the other stuff so that I could focus on running this community with her. Yeah. So you obviously somewhere in there took a turn from just being obsessed about podcasts to being obsessed about helping women know how to podcast. Why, why was that important to you? When I first started Lady Business Radio, I was the only one that was interviewing other women. And so I really wanted to figure out why other women weren't doing it hmm. because those barriers weren't necessarily barriers to me. For example, fear of being heard. That is preposterous to me. Or fear of tech, another preposterous thing, you know, like I'm going to screw something up or I can't do it right. So I created a course called Podcasting School for Women because at the time only 13% of shows were done by women. And I just thought, well, that's just sad. There's got to be more people out there with stuff to say, important things to say besides me. I don't have anything important to say. I'm just finding out what other people have to say that's important. So I did the course and then I got Elsie to help me with the course and we taught about a hundred women how to do podcasts, some of which are still on now and some are not. 
you know, then we broke that course up and just started teaching webinars here. We've done all different kinds of ways of teaching. But the point is, it was important to me because I felt like these are barriers that women have that men don't have. They are afraid to touch tech. They are afraid to ask questions and be told that they're asking stupid questions. They're afraid that someone's going to hear their message and be angry or upset with them or that they don't have the right knowledge to ask those questions, which is to me kind of the point. You're not supposed to have all, if you had all the knowledge, you would be the one being interviewed, not the one interviewing. Yeah. But people have all this like made up criteria in their brains as to what needs to happen in order for them to be able to be qualified to have a podcast. And none of it exists. Not one rule exists. And I think women more than men have those you know, we make up rules for ourselves all the time about what we can and can't do because we've been told our whole lives how to behave and when and and how loudly. So I just wanted to sort of ease that transition a little bit. And I think it's gotten a lot better in the last, I mean, I'm not saying all because of me, but I, I do think that the number has evened out quite a bit in the last couple of years. We've had She Podcast for five years and I think the percentages has grown a great deal. I know that it sounds like I'm saying it's a direct result. I have no idea whether or not it's a direct result. It's probably also a direct result of podcast movement happening and PodFest happening and, you know, School of Podcasting and all the other wonderful people who teach podcasting who are learning more about it and then talking more about it. I think that's amazing. So at the time, though, it was like that stepping stone from 2006 when I was like, that's the nerdiest thing ever. This was sort of a middle place where it wasn't necessarily nerdy, but people didn't really know what it entailed. And so I just wanted to make it a little bit more accessible so that people could you know, say what they had to say. It sounds like you've done that for women in particular because you understand partly where they're coming from and the obstacles that they're typically erecting either for themselves or that are really obstacles that are there in their way. Definitely. And I appreciate that. That's really what a good coach or teacher or instructor does, gets into the shoes of the student. And so it sounds like you and Elsie have done that uh, tremendously. So when you think about your podcasting in terms of the publications you've done, the the shows you've produced, how would you say your listeners have benefited from the work that you've done? I think that my listeners with Elsie get to hear about what they do and how they do it and the industry within which they do it with a perspective that is not intimidating, that makes sense to them, that applies to their own life. And I think that's really important. I think that, you know, for a little while there, Walter Cronkite was the only one giving the news. But after a while, when women started doing it, it became more popular because it almost felt like that's someone that can relate to me. And there are lots of people podcasting that maybe can't relate to, I don't know, who else podcasts about podcasting? But like Podcasters Roundtable, I mean, Daniel J. Lewis is a, you know, he has a very specific style and then also podcasters roundtable, which I've been on can be a little bit analytical. And then um, there's new media with Rob and Todd, the new media show, which can be, you know, kind of a gab fest sometimes and sometimes a little bit, you know, Elsie and I are just sort of like, oh my God, what did you think about this? Oh my God, it was amazing. You know, like we're just different. We're just talking like two girlfriends talking about it. And it's a completely different show than other shows about podcasting. So I think they just get an opportunity to hear it the way they would talk about it, which is kind of cool. That really is kind of cool. I have to admit, I'm a little bit jealous. I don't know that guys really have a thing like this. Maybe that's what, you know, podcast movement and podfest are is a guy oriented thing. They are organized by guys after all. But no skin off anybody's nose. What Elsie 
and Jessica are doing with She Podcasts is really cool. And I think it's quite inspirational and empowering for the women who go. You know, Dave Jackson, the podcast coach, did a recent episode about his experience at She Podcasts. And it was like nothing else he had ever heard. If you haven't heard Dave's explanation and description of what he experienced there and the kind of cool community that's happening among this amazing group of women podcasters, you should check out his episode. I will drop a link to it in the description or the show notes for this episode. All right, Jessica has got a lot more to share. I'm excited for you to hear it. Let's get back to her story. Let's flip that question around. How have you benefited from the podcasting that you've done? Oh my gosh, so many ways. I can't even, well, first that speaking career that I always wanted came knocking down my door and I started being able to talk about podcasting at all kinds of different conferences, not just podcasting ones. And also being featured, we were in Entertainment Magazine. Wow. I think it was Entertainment Magazine. We were featured in a column, Elsie and I, in the print version. We've been in, gosh, Forbes and Entrepreneur.com and Huffington Post, all kinds of stuff. So that's been fun as far as like seeing that it's something people want to read about. But it's also been beneficial for me in that I've been able to become a leader in a way that I've wanted to become a leader before. I'm sort of a, an example in the space. It was a little bit reluctant at first because I just wanted the group to sort of govern the, themselves. And there have been times when that I, we needed to step in and Elsie for Elsie and I was like, oh, just why do you need someone to referee? This is terrible. But you know, stepping into those roles has been quite, I guess, powerful is the right word, but I don't want it to sound like I need all the power and glory, but it's just more like owning what you're capable of, I think. Not necessarily I have power over others, but more I can be a leader in this industry because I have been around long enough. I have worked with enough podcasters. I do know what trends I you know, see and what things people struggle with just from adminning this group and you know, sort of owning your expertise, which is, I don't know, always that easy for someone with attention deficit disorder who's constantly an outsider and shorter than everyone. You know, I think <laughs> I sort of was very comfortable for a long time being almost good enough for what I wanted. And so I think sometimes it can be more difficult to live up to your potential. It's scarier because you have more to lose, you know? Yeah, I do understand that. So talk to me about the attention deficit disorder. You mentioned that a couple of times. Um, how old were you when you first realized that something was going on in that realm? I was in college, but I should have known a lot earlier. I was constantly getting in trouble for talking, like from first grade to 12th. But I didn't know until college because I did not have good study habits and I started failing and I couldn't figure out why if I was going to the classes the same way I always did, yeah. why I wasn't passing. And the reason was because they were giving 30 pages of homework a night and I had no idea what kind of discipline that was going to take to do that. I'd never done it before. Yeah. And, you know, my grades were slipping and I couldn't figure out why. And the school psychologist said it was because I had ADD and I should take medicine, which I refused to do until I was like 30. I just sort of muddled along getting fired from jobs and signing up for things that didn't suit me and jumping into stuff where I didn't belong. I did that for another, you know, 10, 15 years before I, I had a corporate job that I quit. And my husband said, all right, I'm going to support you in having your own business, but you have to have a business coach and she has to specialize in attention deficit disorder and you need medication. Huh. I was like, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> and I've been on medication ever since. And it's worked out. I mean, it's not perfect, but my older son has had to have ADHD medication and 
I kind of explain it as, you know, when you break your ankle or if your ankle is broken, you can hop, but it's a lot easier if you have crutches. They are not going to walk for you. You still have to do it. It's just that this makes it easier. And that's the same with medication. It's not a magic pill. You still have to learn how to organize your life and your time and your head, but this helps you get to that point. You can't get to that point on your own. It's like depression, right? You're you're drowning. You know, you can't just pull yourself magically out of the water. You need something to grab your hair and lift you up, yeah. you know, so that you can see to swim. And that's kind of like what this does, but in a different way, I guess. Yeah. On, on the on the brain chemical side, it, it's helping you. Uh, yeah, exactly. Gain your equilibrium so that you can then take the breath and do something. So I can just say, okay, how can I organize this? Or, all right, what am I going to do first? Like, you don't have that opportunity when you have ADHD. You just have everything weighing on you and then it becomes overwhelming and then you do nothing huh. or you procrastinate or you, you do something that's not important because, you know, then you spend an hour doing something that you should have done last because yeah. you weren't thinking about the stuff that needed to happen before this and you just wasted an entire hour. Yeah. Like, that was my life before I started taking ADHD medication. It's been a huge, it's at least given me the opportunity. I mean, I'm still not perfect. I still do that sometimes, but I at least have the ability to think through it a little better. It's a skill that you have to hone like anything else, though. Yeah. So what do you think was behind the resistance to taking the medication? Well, since then, I've read that ADHD people just hate taking medication. I have no idea why, but I also will never take a, an Advil if I have a headache. I don't like to take cold medicine. I'd rather sniffle to death. I don't know why. And it's a common trait. I mean, like when I have a headache and I don't take the medicine, I just sort of feel like I can power through it and I don't need it. Like same with the cold medicine. And then people will be like, well, why are you suffering? This is ridiculous. It's like, I don't need it. I'm fine. Uh. And there's no good reason for it. It's just an instinct that I still have a hard time. I mean, now I know better, but I still I take my medicine religiously because I've convinced myself that I can't function without it. But other types of things still Benadryl and Advil. I just wait until I'm dying before I take it. Hmm. And there's no good reason. No good reason. It's just one of those weird little brain ticks, I guess. Yeah. Not that it's a good reason, but I think sometimes we want so badly to be fine that- And also, I think we can ignore it. I have the ability to ignore it for a really long time. Yeah. I can just ignore it and focus on something else. And I don't want to be bothered with finding something to drink. Like I know it sounds ridiculous, but that seems like a lot of work when I'm buried in something. Yeah. I'm the same way. Are you? Yeah. I get, I get really focused on what I'm doing and I don't want to take the time to go have lunch. Just another yes, right another example. Yeah. Or shower, yeah. or yeah, or get the mail, yeah, or or do the dishes. You know, like I try and compartmentalize all that stuff. Like I do a little bit of stuff in the morning and a little bit of stuff before I get my little one from daycare, and everything in the middle. If I get to eat in the middle there, it's a good day. But I shove it all in there because I yeah, I don't like to stop for that stuff. Yeah, I totally get it. That last section where Jessica was speaking about her own struggle with ADD and how she's learned to cope with it, I think is such a transparent and powerful thing for all of us to hear. You know, let's just face it. We're all human beings. We all have our limitations and we all need help from time to time when it comes to either some sort of a condition like attention deficit disorder or just our own junk that gets in the way of us becoming everything we need to be. Jessica, thank you so much for your transparency, for giving us all a model to follow, somebody's steps to walk in. In this next section, I ask Jessica some very pointed and very specific questions about podcasting 
and about her advice to anybody who's considering starting one. You don't want to miss this. Do you think everyone should podcast? No, no. Yeah, when do you say it so strongly? Uh, there are so many people out there who are boring, so boring. <laughs> Just nothing to say. No way of saying it. God, they're boring. And I mean, they don't always know they're boring, which is kind of a problem. But I mean, there are exceptions. But I, but I do feel like people who ask the same questions the same exact way every show are not creative enough to have a podcast, I don't think. I'm not speaking specifically about John Lee Dumas because <laughs> I've been interviewed on his show. And believe it or not, it does not happen the way it sounds like it's happening. It sounds like he asks the same way every time, but it's actually more like a conversation like this. He, they just piece it together for a half hour of the same thing every time, but it's really not. And so he actually is more talented than he makes himself look, unfortunately. But I have been on shows where no matter what I say to the question, the answer is always, great. That's so interesting. Like you did not hear a word. You're just waiting for me to be finished. So you can ask this next question that drives me insane. Yeah. And then I also think people who are podcasting because they think it's going to be some kind of cash cow, that's a terrible, terrible idea. If you're not interested in the topic or if you don't have like the strongest drive ever to get these stories out into other people's ears, that needs to be the driving force, not money, because pour your heart and soul into what you're doing. I feel like you can make money doing anything as long as it's not the driving force for doing something. Does that make sense? To me, what you're saying is if you're focusing on adding value to people, They'll repay you with what you value, which in this case might be money, you know, or attention or whatever it is that, that you're seeking as your goal. But you've got to be willing to, like you said, pour your heart and soul into the production of that content. Let's say one of those multi-level marketing schemes. Yeah. You really try to convince yourself that you're totally into whatever product it is you're selling. But you know the truth is you're waiting for that Mercedes Benz at the end of the road. And it's not a good enough reason to keep selling stuff you don't care about. Not even think about the Mercedes because you just love whatever you're selling so much that you would sell it for free because it's the best stuff you ever found. And the same thing is true with your podcast. I think you have to be really driven to ask these questions and tell these stories, even if no one hears them ever, because you need to know you want to put it out. It's for you. And I think your enthusiasm is rewarded by other people's enthusiasm. And then whatever goals you set in the beginning will eventually come to fruition because you just subconsciously drive it towards whatever you want, whether it is attention or money or speaking or whatever. I knew that I wanted a speaking career and people just started asking me to speak because I kept saying it on the show for one thing. And, you know, because whenever someone was saying, I need someone to t teach about podcasting, I'd be like, here, right here, I'm going to do yeah. it. If I wanted cash, I wouldn't have done that. I would have think, well, will you sponsor me? <laughs> you know, and then I would have gotten it that way. So you just subconsciously drive it. But, but thinking about it from the get-go is terrible because... Podcasting just doesn't work that way. It's so much work. I think people think they can just turn on a, a microphone and people will just come flocking to their fascinating story and it just never works that way. It is so much hustle and work, constant hustle, constant work, whether it's you or someone you pay. Amen, sister. <laughs> yeah, hey. it's a lot of work. If you're going to do it successfully, it's so much work. But it's great. It's also great. If you were a kid in in the basement with a tape recorder doing your own game show, then it doesn't feel like work. It feels like fun. This is fun. I went to University of Delaware. I went to WVUD. And the second I walked into the radio studio, I walked out because all those buttons made me dizzy. And I was like, I too bad so much for my radio career. That's going to end right now. But it didn't. It doesn't have to. And that's what's great about it. But I've 
I've, you know, I've had the thought about it for such a long time. I think people just see like, I don't know, they see someone who just started getting sponsorship and they're, when can I sponsorship? How many episodes do I have to have in order to have sponsorship? How many downloads do I, well, none, zero is your answer. It's never going to be right because you're always focused on the wrong thing. Mm, that's great. So would that be a part of your advice to someone who's brand new to podcasting, considering starting a podcast is, is first of all, understand the hard work or would you start somewhere else? Yeah. I mean, I think I would say if you're starting a podcast, make sure it's something that you will never get sick of talking about and that you talk about a lot already with others and make sure that you, if you have co-hosts or people that you're interviewing, that they're people that you are excited to talk to about this topic. And that can't happen every time, especially, you know, after one, two years. But at first it needs to be people you're super excited to talk about with this topic and, and then see how it goes. Just see if you like it. I usually jump in and then see what I think before I, I mean, I'm committed, but also I'm never really committed. You're talking about ready, fire, aim. Ready, fire, aim. Yeah. I do a lot of firing without aiming just to see what would happen. Um, And so if someone wasn't sure, I think I would say give it a shot because you have nothing really to lose. But just know that if you want it to be successful, it is no walk in the park. It is a lot of work. But you don't have to worry about that at first. At first, you just have to know, like, are you articulate and do you hate it? Mm. You won't know until you turn on the mic. You just will never know. You have to figure it out. And I think I would add to that in my experience with clients. Don't let the first one or two that you record be a deterrent making you think you're awful because everybody's awful at first. They're all terrible. It's so true. I mean, the only people I've heard who aren't awful at first are people who have a background in broadcasting already because they're used to being behind the mic. But that doesn't mean just because you're a broadcaster, you're going to be great either. Yeah. I mean, it isn't even really about being awful. It's about whether or not you enjoy it. Forget mm. about being awful. Because even like, let's say you're if you're starting ballroom dancing, of course, you're going to be awful. But is it fun? Yeah. If it's fun, you'll get better. If you hate it, don't do it anymore because it'll be terrible. I had so much fun going back through and editing this episode. Jessica is just a riot. I think you will love the things that she and Elsie are doing over at She Podcasts. Be sure you check out their resources in the episodes or just Google She Podcasts. I'm sure you'll find them. I love to give credit to the people who do the amazing music that I use on these episodes. There are a couple by a guy named Jason Shaw over at audionautics.com first. There is the fun, busy intro at about three seconds into this episode and sneaky snooper at 10 minutes and six seconds. Those are licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. A couple of other tunes written by a guy named Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech.com. First is Pamagia at 30 minutes and 50 seconds into this episode. And then Night at the Docks, 38 minutes and 24 seconds into this episode. And then finally, the music you're listening to right now that I use for the intro, mid-roll break, and outro of these podcaster stories is by Kevin McLeod as well. It's called Shaving Mirror, and it is licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Hey, my friends, I am so happy you're here with me. And it's my hope that these podcaster stories inspire you to go out and make a great podcast of your own. Unless 
you're one of those people like Jessica says who's just boring so so boring 